0: Hi and welcome to the 2023 Tech for Public Good podcast. This is the third podcast in this series. We've had a previous podcast on mental health and another one on gender equality. And so this is our third podcast, which will be on climate change. And the purpose of this podcast series is to discuss some of the biggest issues in the world we live in and the issues that may, may, that we may face over the next decade. We're not here to solve these issues, just to bring these issues into focus. Alongside this series, we're running an online residency program called Tech for Public Good with artists, creatives and academics from around the world. They're prototyping solutions using technology and creativity for one issue that they'll collectively decide on. The conversations in this podcast series are aimed to inform their processes and get them talking about their own lived experiences or prompting creative responses to what we talk about here. As mentioned before, our three po- po- topics for this podcast series were mental health, gender equality, and climate change. And today, our roundtable talk or podcast is on climate change. And I'll be joined by Anna Jasinski who is uh, my co-host for this uh, podcast. And then our three great speakers, Dr. Alice Owen from the University of Leeds, Lucy Brooks, who is a fellowship leader in uh, climate change at the AHS. And that's at Hull, uh, uh, I'm sure, is that, is that correct, Lucy? Um, so I'm seconded to Health Education England, Yorkshire and Humber. Yeah, so thank you for that. And then uh, Elizabeth uh, Edgington from Business and Community, um, uh, leading on the uh, and also Leeds Climate Change Commission. So I will hand you over to Anna who will then introduce herself.
1: Thanks, Adam. Hi, everyone. Lovely to share this virtual space with you all. My name is Anna Tadinsky. I go by the pronouns she, her, and I'm a producer at Leeds 2023. Um, I've actually lived in Leeds for the past 10 years after growing up between Brighton and California. Um, And before working at Leeds 2023, I was an independent arts producer supporting live art festivals, artists and communities to create cultural events and happenings in the city. Uh, This podcast is recorded over Zoom and we're excited for it to be an informal conversation with everything that comes along with remote meetings. So there may be dogs barking, doors knocking and mouses clicking. So we'll just welcome all of that noise into the space. Um, As I Adam said we've asked the participants for tech for the public good to submit some questions to you our panel uh, which I'll be asking on their behalf um, I wonder before we get into the questions if you guys wouldn't mind introducing yourselves to the listeners um, and I'm going to pick on you so Alice would you mind going first
2: Absolutely. Thanks very much for the invitation to join you in this space. Um, I'm Alice Owen. I'm a professor of wait for Forest, long job title coming up, Professor of Business, Sustainability and Stakeholder Engagement in at the Sustainability Research Institute at the University of Leeds. Um, and my involvement in thinking about climate change is quite focused on the um, what do we do about uh, responding to climate change, particularly in the homes that we live in and who is going to take the action to change the homes that we live in? I've been working around issues of sustainability for um, three decades or more um, and actually only became an academic um But nearly nearly a decade ago now actually when i left consultancy to do a phd so i've kind of done things the wrong way around but it means i bring a practice focus to the research that i do
1: brilliant thanks alice that's fascinating Um, elizabeth would you mind going next
3: Hello. Yes, I'm Elizabeth Edgington, and I'm the Environment Advisor at Business in the Community, which is a charity that uh, focuses on responsible business practice. And um, I work with some of the biggest um, organisations in the country um, to understand, you know, how they should be taking action um, on climate and also on resource use and, you know, all the other aspects of environmental impact. Um, I've been also doing this for quite a long time, and. Um, you know, and, and both the, the charity and also before that at a, at a large FTSE um, company um, and uh, yeah I'm you know very passionate about bringing this forward and getting our companies involved um, but making sure that that's something which you know they, they want to do because it's the right thing for them to be to be doing um, for all of our futures. Fabulous
1: thank you and Lucy.
4: Thank you so much for having me. My name's Lucy Brooks, my pronouns are she, her. Um, I am a doctor in the NHS and I'm currently working as a leadership fellow in climate change and anesthesia. Um, So my background is as an anesthetic trainee. Um, I'm currently sort of in the middle of my training pathway and I've taken some time out of my clinical practice to look at how we can reduce the negative carbon and climate impacts of anesthesia as a specialty across the region that I live in, which is Yorkshire and Humber. Um, I've always been passionate about the climate and sustainability and so when this opportunity arose I had to grab it with both hands so thanks so much for having me
1: thank you amazing okay let's get into it so as I said we've got some questions that have been convened by um the participant participants for tech for the public good um and the first one is really easy so don't worry we're using we're you in I'm joking it's not um <laughs> So how do we all feel after COP26? With many touting it as a failure to reach effective deals to make swift enough changes in terms of global emissions, how do we move forward as a society? Any volunteers to weigh in on that first? Well, no pressure, right? Um, So, I mean, I've got very mixed
4: feelings about COP26. I think from a policy point of view, steps obviously have been taken to cut emissions, but they definitely don't go far enough. Uh, We're still on track for 2.4 degrees warming, and we know that's going to be catastrophic. But countries accounting for about 90% of world GDP have pledged to go net zero by mid-century, and governments are waking up to their responsibility to do something and, you know, make take action. Um, I guess the the fact that the pledges are due now to be reviewed in one year's time rather than in five years' time is a big change of pace, and I think that's really positive. Um, But for me, the biggest failure is the decision not to immediately stop funding fossil fuels. Obviously, it's a really complex situation. Businesses, jobs, economies are at stake, but we can no longer afford to be putting profit before people and before planet. That being said, on a positive note, we have also seen the power of people and grassroots activism. I joined the Global Day of Action in London in the middle of COP26, and I was marching with other healthcare professionals. And um, you know, all, all recognizing the health threats of climate change, and being amongst all these like-minded people and listening to the rally, uh, I did really find hope there. So, so I don't think it's all doom and gloom. Mm.
3: No, I would agree. I mean, it was definitely. Um, bit of a mixed a mixed uh, bag, wasn't it? So, you know, some consider COP26 a failure. There are others who are celebrating that 1.5 degrees may still just be achievable. And, you know, it is normal when a negotiation ends that, you know, everyone has some irritation with the results and it usually indicates there's been, you know, some compromise on both sides to sort of come up with a successful income, outcome, sorry. But it, it just doesn't feel that, that way this time. Um, And I say, you know, while the UK and other developed countries are committing to cut greenhouse gas emissions, it's the countries we've outsourced our manufacturing to that are unwilling and consider themselves really unable to cut their ties to coal and, you know, now facing the castigation of the world. And it's easy to forget that actually, you know, we drive a lot of that. Our 45% of greenhouse gas emissions are actually linked to the things we buy, the things that are manufactured in those factories in China and India and using That coal that we want to see phased out and you know we don't need those international agreements in place for all of us particularly companies to be making different choices that will help to reduce and eliminate those emissions but we really mustn't forget that you know those countries need supporting because you know they're struggling to decarbonize their energy supply and because actually some you know that there's much more complicated issues behind that Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, without clean, reliable energy supply, life for those people is always going to be harder. The economy will always struggle and vulnerable communities will also struggle. So, you know, we need to take that on board and um, understand what we can do to to make a difference to those 45 percent of greenhouse gas emissions while still supporting those vulnerable communities for a good future for all of us. Those
2: are great um, descriptions of. The, the outcomes I think I, I would add to that only by focusing on that first part of the question Anna about how do we feel about mm-hmm. after COP26 and I, 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 I heard something very useful to me the other day that I think it's appropriate to share which is we usually respond to how do we feel about something by whether we're optimistic or pessimistic but there is a different kind of um, way of responding which is And this comes from Becky Willis, a brilliant um, researcher around the democracy and democratic aspects of responding to climate. I highly recommend um, what what she writes in all sorts of forms. But she said there's another way of feeling about it, which is whether you're determined or despairing, which kind of cuts across whether you feel optimistic or pessimistic about what's doing actually. Do, do you do you still have the determination to do what you can and make a difference? And I still feel determined um, rather than despairing, because I think that there is a, a much stronger acceptance now that uh, hanging on to fossil fuels that. Um, not challenging the way in which we consume resources is just not acceptable. We have to uh, challenge those accepted Mm -hmm. standards and we're a long way off off doing that. Um, But I feel determined, I think, is how I would respond to the question.
1: That's a really useful way of moving forward from something like COP26. I love that, are you determined or... Yeah, I would definitely echo that. I feel determined as well. and leading on from that kind of positive slant on it, uh, what are the policies that were agreed at COP26 um, that we can champion in order to make a wide positive change?
2: So shall I, shall we do this in reverse order? I'll no. pick that one time. because I think it's worth differentiating between the UN agreements, which Lucy and Elizabeth have already kind of highlighted that you know there's, there's some things in place but they don't go far enough. And then the other extraordinary range of policies and commitments outside of the UN actors that were launched off the back of COP but then they're not part of the UN process Um, and there's a lot of good good news stories in those other commitments although they are still commitments rather than reporting on significant progress but on the UN agreements I would say that the key priorities the things that we can champion are to actually deliver on the pledges we you know we are certainly in the UK we're so world-class at setting targets but that's not the same as making a difference. So delivering on the pledges, I think we can keep, keep um, our representatives feet to the fire on that. Um, and specifically to pay up on the financial support to to country, less developed countries. It was offered to them a decade ago, financial support to help them with the climate transition. You know, we have to step up to that plate. Um, Otherwise, our promises about the future are meaningless. I think the other thing, the the, the phrase that's emerged from this COP is the idea of loss and damage. So previous funding packages have been about Uh, And commitments have been about helping less developed countries move into the low carbon transition whereas now there is an additional set of financial requirements being discussed about compensation for loss and damage because climate change is affecting people now and it's not a future issue and I think I personally am at the stage where I just need to understand the dimensions of that and what sort of funding and support would make a difference in terms of compensation, loss and damage. Um, and then at an individual level, picking up um, exactly what the, the, my other two panelists have said, you know, we have to make individually make it clear that fossil fuels have no part in the future that we want. You know, at the moment, the, the economic benefit of fossil fuels and the incumbency of jobs and the like is, is held up as a reason, as though it's protecting our future. Mm. And actually, when you want to say we need to say fossil fuels have no part in the future that I want. How are you going to help me get to the future that I want? My my and my final point is I think around the UN agreements is we can. Um, what was lovely about this COP is I heard voices that I don't normally hear around climate change. I heard underrepresented groups, youth groups, ethnic groups, making their points, and I think. I have a role um, in amplifying those voices that aren't otherwise heard.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. I I, I hear you on that one, absolutely, Alice. I think a story I heard that came out of COP26 was um, somebody from another organization who met someone from um, a campaigning group somewhere far away who said, look at my face remember it because in a year I'll be dead because of climate change and I'm sorry it's so distressing but you know we did see that face we did hear that voice and you know that that is a remarkable thing and and we need to carry that forward in our actions um, and our understandings to the future um and I you know I think the fact that we actually got fossil fuels and coal in that agreement Mentioned the first time is a really positive step forward. I know it was watered down, but at the last minute, but it did get it, they, they were talked about, and they, we need to we need to push that forward. And I mean, I, I'm thinking about when you were speaking about how else we can make a difference in our own way, how we can um, bring that to life in our own lives as well, and perhaps in um, in our own businesses too, um, where possible. Um, So, you know, thinking about how you're translating that, you know, are you on a renewable energy tariff? You know, I know these things are difficult at the moment while energy markets are volatile, um, but they will settle and there are still opportunities. Could you invest in renewable energy? You know, the prices are coming down. Um, And most importantly of all, and something which people always forget and skirt over is energy efficiency. You know, that's something we can all do. And it's relatively cheap to do in most cases. And that's, you know, and that if we don't have to produce that energy in the first place, then we don't need to be worrying so much about how we're making that energy. So that's something which people here listening today can go away and, you know, can think about straight away. And for me, another policy win was around deforestation. I mean, we've had these promises before and they didn't work out, but this time does seem to be much better funded. <coughs> so, excuse me, so leaders from more than 100 countries about eighty five percent of the world's forests have actually promised to stop deforestation by 2030. I, it was distressing to see the images from Brazil only a week later. <laughs> but let's try and be determined and not <laughs> despairing. Um, and you know though again, there are ways that we can get involved. we can we can help drive some of these things from our positions here um you know thinking about how you can help stop drive the need for deforestation there are things you can do checking your wood-based products from sustainable sources putting pressure on companies to make that change looking for that certification avoiding products that you know isn't from um certified um sustainable palm oil um you know thinking about how about what your what your impacts might be and um And actually on a more personal um, basis, you know, thinking about how you're supporting nature um, in order to make a difference for the future for our future generations. The other thing that I was really pleased to see at COP26 actually as well is just, and it's not about policy, but to see the US take its place in the leadership again at COP26, that was quite a relief after everything. So, (laughs) and, uh, and launching an initiative to drive, you know, some real investment in green technologies which um, I think, you know, given my previous statements about about fossil fuels in other countries, I think will be tremendously useful. And there was also some really good things announced that were not policy again, which um, have affected a lot of my businesses um, from the Science Based targets Initiative, um, announcing a new net zero standard, which um, is fantastic because beforehand that was something people could kind of decide where net zero laid for their their own organizations to standard that now has been announced um, that explains exactly how much you know how much greenhouse gases you've got to uh, reduce and eliminate from your from your business and from um, all the the things that you influence before you can kind of offset the last very last five percent of your emissions and say that you are at net zero carbon and that that's really exciting and meaningful for businesses and will drive forward a lot of change, I think. So that's great. There were other things too
4: yeah i mean i i would agree I, I um with what you've said elizabeth i think that we should definitely be championing championing the emphasis that's been placed on um protecting and restoring nature and ecosystems um we know you know from a carbon perspective how important that is um but also from a well-being perspective you know we you know there's so much evidence that green space and coastal spaces are are so good for well-being and for health um you know as a healthcare professional it would be remiss of me not to, not to To comment on that. Um, But I also would reflect on what Alice said about the underrepresented groups. I think um, one of the things that really came out quite strongly, certainly from um, some of the coverage of COP26, is how we've had more young people, um, more Indigenous populations um and sort of local community groups standing up and talking about what they need and, and what is necessary for their communities i think when we're thinking about tackling climate change it's really important to look at these problems with an intersectional lens um and make sure that the solutions we're coming up with especially the technology-based ones which obviously is relevant to our audience to this today we need to make sure it's accessible um and solutions need to be designed with sharing in mind you know we need to make things that are transferable and um, particularly to developing countries and are shareable and not hoarded by wealthy parties. And I would say that the, the policy agreement does say that quite clearly in a lot of places. And I think that's a big um, kind of cultural shift in terms of how we address and, and redress the imbalance um, here. I The other thing I would say is that from a, from a tech perspective, Point of view, um, lots of other things that come up in terms of policy around um, capacity for mitigation and adaptation to climate, climate change, even if we can keep um, to 1.5, and I think we're still to see if that is going to be true, um, we know that we're facing a huge amount of disruption from climate change and, and all over the world. I mean, I live in Yorkshire and we're heavily affected by flooding all along the East Coast. Um, you know, record number of deaths from flooding in Yorkshire over the last couple of years. And so we need to be thinking about um, adaptation and resilience strategies. And I think there's definitely a role for, for more tech solutions there. But as I say, I think it's really important that we, we keep sharing in mind when, when thinking about them. And um, particularly, you know, in answer to your question, when we're looking at how we can make wider positive change.
1: Amazing. Thank you. That actually segues really nicely onto this next question, which is a bit of a personal um, statement from one of the participants from the group. Uh, Growing up, my education interweaves sustainability and actions on global warming throughout. I found identity and purpose in recycling, taking public transport, shutting doors, turning off lights, etc. And these tiny acts seem now to be swamped by mass media narrative of doom and gloom, and only big business slash big farming can save the planet. How do, we con- how do we convince the public that every action matters? And it is important to convince general public to spend their money on sustainable businesses. So I think that echoes back to what you were saying, Lucy, about sharing and how do we kind of raise awareness about what people on an independent and individual level can actually do to help. Yeah.
4: Yeah, and I think Elizabeth has talked already about quite a lot of the things that individuals can do that can make a difference. I mean, personally, for me, my motivation for making uh, the changes that I can make in my life, small ones, bigger ones, um, is that I don't want to be responsible for leaving the world in a worse state than I arrived on it. Um, and I think that regardless of how much you feel our individual actions can have impact in terms of making things better i certainly think we have a responsibility to do the least harm possible so whilst we might not be fixing a huge amount of individual actions um and i i think there is an argument that corporations big you know big farming and big tech companies really do have to to take the weight of of this. Um, and I mean, we've seen that with the COVID pandemic. Look, everybody being locked in their homes and not doing most of the things they enjoy doing didn't have a huge impact on our carbon footprint, you know, nationally, globally. Um, so, so yes, I think individual actions are important, but for me, my motivation is more about doing as least harm rather than making a huge big difference as an individual. That being said, the actions definitely add up and particularly in terms of public opinion um, and swaying putting pressure on governments and corporations to change. Um, So for example, I was recently at a wedding and I met a chap who's involved in packaging design. It's not my area of expertise. I don't know anything about it, Um, but you know, he's sitting next to him at dinner and you get chatting. And um, he was talking about how they're having to change a lot of their practices. They've got all their clients now asking for sustainable packaging. And even though it's much more expensive, the big companies know that it's important to their customers and that's us we're the customers and they know that if their competitor has more sustainable packaging they might lose out on sales so you know and we're seeing that in our supermarkets less plastic on fruit and veg and more recyclable options that sort of thing so whilst it might not feel like a huge amount um, of difference in terms of particularly in terms of carbon impact as an individual I think that the pressure that we're able to put on as a collective of individuals uh, to make big companies make those changes is really really important and something we should
0: lose sight of. I could kind of just want to jump in there just very, very quickly, I've been doing sort of a bit of research over the past few weeks, and one thing I I didn't realise until quite recently is how much money our banks invest, of our personal money, our banks invest into uh, fossil fuels and fossil fuel companies, and it was reading that almost over the past uh, six years, four trillion dollars has been invested in fossil fuels from some of the biggest banks in the world. So literally, choosing where you bank could make a big difference. If you, if you, and you can find out many places that don't invest, where banks invest your money. So if you actually look and find out where they're investing and sort of go for banks that invest more ethically, you could make a big difference there. Because if you're not putting your your money in the banks, the banks are going to change where they invest. In theory, so I think that's something that you can definitely look at.
4: Yeah, and I think the key word there is ethical as well. It's not just about fossil fuels, it's also about ethical investments, um, and making sure that your money that you know that you your hard earned cash um, isn't funding um, slave labour, for example, um, and planet destruction. Uh, That's definitely something that I I, uh, took the switch made the switch a little while ago for those reasons.
2: Think it's helpful particularly when you're feeling quite disempowered and feeling like they what's sometimes called the Tesco's model of sustainable development the every little helps really isn't quite enough for the transformation that wanted is to think about the different ways in which you can make a difference because the um, the things highlighted in the question are the things that you can do to some degree as a consumer about changing your your uh, your your decision making and how you use resources and and changing your purchasing habits and what you purchase absolutely is a really important aspect of um, tackling your individual carbon footprint. But a big chunk of in- individual carbon footprint, as Lucy's highlighted, is made up of things uh, that are determined nationally and internationally. So how on earth do you start to influence those? Well, as well as a consumer, you can also be a producer. Again, that can be quite small scale, but you have, you do have a role in making, producing, stewarding the resources that keep you well and occupied and, and, and happy. Um, you are, as, as you've just said, Adam. You're in a, you can be an investor even if you don't feel there's any disposable income around. The chances are that there is some kind of, uh, yeah, banking provision or, or pension provision being made on your on your behalf somewhere. Um, so you're an investor, but you can also be an advocate, and that doesn't mean just the loud. Um, marching, although I I actually think that's quite important that people feel they can be part of a community, but there's also the kind of um, advocating um, through your workplace, through your social network, through, through the kinds of conversations you have around the tables at weddings, those kind of things, whereby simply you know making it clear what your values and interests are that that has a role in achieving change so I wouldn't give up on the small things they're important to to actually be your authentic self but I think we also recognize we can't stop at the small things we control we have to influence as well as control
3: absolutely no completely I mean getting action on climate change is always so challenging because those impacts just can seem so far off. They are getting closer, but they, you know, they're often so remote a feeling, you know, either in time or geography or a different community that you don't, you know, doesn't feel relevant to to, to people. Um, So actually understanding and acting on climate it requires you know both some scientific reasoning and and a lot of empathy so these are very positive characteristics and one should, everybody working in this should, should give themselves a hearty pat on the back for for having those those are uh, those those very positive characteristics um but you know things are getting closer and you know we are all part of one big system so absolutely every action does have an effect it might not be um, exactly the effect that you're expecting, but nothing is in isolation. And you know, things will have knock-on consequences. And it might be that, you know, you help change how other people do things. You know, you, you influence, as you say, Alice, and you you might learn something, and then you can help others coming after you. So, you know, and you don't have to do everything at once. So you know, we, in my my household, we now have a plastic-free bathroom. We didn't decide that and do it overnight. That was something that was a you know a bit of a long-term project. You know, um, every yeah. <laughs> so um, you know, I, I started by going to a refillable place, which is great. And we you know we had to first save up the bottles to use at the refillable place, and um, and and then start doing that and trying different different things, which we you know because we're moving to different products and. And then you know they had other things that we could use so we you know we tried those things and you can sort of just start to kind of build up um you know what you're going to do personally little by little and that's a that might seem a small example but i've talked about that with lots of different people who are now also trying that out and now we have a refillables place here in our own town where we can all stroll down and have a go at, you know so that's one thing that's kind of sparked a lot of movement forward um, between myself and the rest of my community, and that's really exciting to see. Um, and you know, you have to keep an eye on what you really can change, and you know, take pleasure in that. And you know, climate stress is now something that is recognised by psychologists. I'm sure Lucy has a great deal more to say about than about that than than I do. Um, so you know, we, we we all need to look after our mental health. Um, and collaboration, being together in a community is a really important part of that. And yes, nature, what an amazing healer nature is. So getting out into nature to kind of, you know, to get the benefits of that thing that we're, we're all trying to trying to help along. But, you know, I mean, thinking about those big companies, I mean, there's some interesting research showing, you know, that 90 of the largest carbon producers are responsible for nearly two-thirds of the emissions since, you know, we we started on all of this and in the uh, Industrial Revolution. I mean, that's, that's quite scary. I mean, you know, you start to think, well, what on earth can I do? But, you know, always remember that, you know, that campaigning element, that, that, that 17,000 Dutch citizens took Shell to court and won. Um, that might sound like a lot, but it's a lot less than... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's exciting. That's an exciting change. Yes, it's led to all sorts of other things happening after that. But that was an exciting, an exciting point. Um, and, you know, sometimes you have to remember that the tipping point, the social tipping point of getting people to engage is actually as low as 25%. So if you can get a quarter of the people in your community to kind of to, to be feeling the same way as you on something, well, then you're going to see social change. And that can really add up to a lot. I mean when, it was interesting during the extinct rebellion um, protests in London a, couple, a few years ago that when actually the, the, the law was changed on the climate change act to go from 80% to 100% decarbonisation, that was, that was partly because people started to really support those protests. The school strikes um, were responsible for many local authorities making some really quite significant commitments towards climate action. And that, you know, that was our children. It's my child anyway, <laughs> she was off down there. Um, and, you know, that's that's really exciting. And, you know, I hope people feel empowered by those stories to come together, to keep working, find your individual actions, tell everybody that you can about it without being incredibly annoying. And, um, <laughs> you know, and, and to stay healthy in your own mind with it as much as you can, much as any of us can.
1: Brilliant. That also segues really nicely into this next question, because I feel like we've answered 2.1 naturally there. Um, so question three is, in your experience, do you think climate change should be an integrated part of school slash university curriculums? For example, should students be taught how to carbon budget as part of their maths classes?
2: Should I just respond? Um, I've got a couple of things I get in a soapbox about, and this is one of <laughs> If I disappear off the top of the screen, it's because I've stepped onto my safe <laughs> Um let, Let's let's be really clear that I I think increasing carbon literacy and understanding what's driving climate change and the impacts of climate change is a really good thing. I think I, I trained as an engineer originally. I happen to think that understanding the natural sciences is a really good thing, and and that way of rational thinking is is very uh, helpful. Although it's not. the the totality of of ways of tackling a problem. So, so certainly um, improving understanding across all people um, is uh, is important. And the school strikes have already showed that a large number of school children already have a high level of concern about climate change, a concern that is currently emphasized for some of them by, by apparent powerlessness um my son did his GCSEs last summer and my observation is that teachers are already taking opportunities in geography and chemistry and physics and so on in English to to use the curriculum to help students think about energy and climate change issues and citizenship is part of that is thinking about the kind of life you want to lead Um, but can you imagine the uproar from some sections of media and society if teachers were perceived, teachers in state schools were perceived to be telling students how to live and what consumption choices to make. And I happen to think that the curriculum is not of itself, shoving more and more things into the curriculum so that then students have to be assessed on them is not necessarily the way of achieving change. and let's not kid ourselves that children in any school all learn to the same degree and depth on all subjects, even though they're studying the same curriculum. You know, people... So, So adding to the curriculum is great for people who are successful learners in the way that we currently teach and learn. But I wouldn't want to ignore all those people who don't succeed in that mode of formal education, who may not get a GCSE grade four in maths or English, but actually still more than have the capacity and the desire to understand the issues and move forward. So so one of the things that makes me bridle a bit about the idea of shoving more things into the curriculum, which is already stuffed, um, is that we're not necessarily rethinking what education is for in the round. Um, And I don't think, based on my recent experience, um, I'm not sure that changing education massively again at the moment is a is going to be a particularly productive process for anyone involved. My fundamental problem with this is that we we default to this kind of, what's called the deficit model of education, particularly where children are concerned. We kind of frame them as empty vessels that just need to be filled up with knowledge and therefore they will do things differently. And that is just not true but you know, one, one, they're not empty vessels. there's plenty already in those vessels even by the time they start primary school. And two, knowing stuff is not the same as changing behavior. So um, I'll, I'll step off the soapbox no, i'm'm I'm,
3: I'm
2: I'm affirming what the questioner question is about about there is a greater need for understanding of these issues. I'm just really concerned that we see, changing school as the way of
3: achieving that because I'm not sure it is yeah and also it puts huge pressure doesn't on our young people that oh you know this is now over to you Claude (laughs) you know you now know the issues you sort it out and you know we we need to be taking that responsibility but I do see huge hope for actually giving um educate giving um young people the opportunity to develop skills for green jobs and to really kind of push for those skills Um, And that to me is incredibly important. And, you know, I I am concerned that we are currently sort of, you know, being teaching young people, giving careers advice on jobs that, you know, won't exist in 10 years time, if we are truly moving to a sustainable economy. That's a massive if in there, but gonna make it happen. (laughs) Keep going. Um, And, you you know, we're setting them up to fail on that where we could be instead giving them some really wonderful opportunities to succeed in an economy that's actually good for so many more of us. And that's a really exciting prospect. Um, You know, so I would, I would be urging investment into education and training that, you know, prepares young people for meaningful employment that, you know, will actually help to deliver our carbon reduction commitments um, and, you know, the stop, climate, well, halt the climate crisis, halt, slow down the climate crisis, and also thinking about, you know, how that contributes to, you know, to climate justice as well, and thinking about how that contributes to, uh, enables our communities to, to move forward together in a new, um, better so uh, economy that will be good for more of us. And there's all sorts of jobs that this could be about, could be about, which are really exciting, and thinking about forestry, thinking about regenerative agriculture um thinking about protecting nature regenerating nature thinking about some of those technical skills for renewable energy heat pumps i mean at the moment you know the, whatever one might think about heat pumps etc etc and all the new uh <laughs> grants for them we you know if that is the way we're going we don't have enough people to actually fit the darn thing so we need to you know there's an awful lot of opportunity there um and you know and, and uh thinking about, you know, the people who are able to have that strategic overview, who are able to, you know, lead and um, manage these massive changes we're going to need, you know, we, 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 that we, that we that we need to happen. So there's already a forecast green skill shortage. Um, and that was probably before we knew a bit more about how fast things are moving. Um, and so we really, you know, we really do need to provide a lot more opportunity to progress in that area. So I would also perhaps uh, lay off from um, yes, putting yet more into the curriculum, unless it is actually where we're where we're able to to help people to 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 to, to be a part of our new our new um, more inclusive and um, yeah, <laughs> better for the environment and better for all of us economy.
1: Yeah I mean
4: I think that I absolutely see where you're coming from. I think education is really really important and I think that some of the problems that um, you've both described there are more to do with the education system that we have and the way that we teach children and examine children in schools and the way that our curriculum is prioritised and actually there'd be a huge number of ways that we could change the way we teach children um, that incorporate a huge number of the sort of sustainable principles and preparation for sustainable and green jobs. in a way and sort of a more holistic approach to education um, in a way that you could include things in a curriculum but rather than saying today you're having your sustainability classes here's your exam your GCSE on sustainability you encourage children to spend more time outside and you um, look at what lessons can be learned in other ways that are not necessarily examined and I think that particularly in the UK we have a huge emphasis on examining children very very early in their academic careers Um, and I'm not convinced we really have the evidence of benefit for that the other thing i would say in terms of education is that we've only here talked about youth education and actually there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done in terms of professional and vocational education how can we expect our children um, and our children's children to know how to manage these things and to be ready for a greener world if we don't actually teach the people who are teaching them. You can't just throw people in at the deep end and expect they're going to have the knowledge they need um, to set a good example. You know, for example, a big part of the work that I'm doing to reduce the negative environment, environmental impacts of anaesthesia is educating anaesthetists on principles of sustainable practice. You I'm know, really to think about how we're delivering the sustainability education, because obviously teaching principles of sustainability uh, from the beginning of vocational training at the point now if we change the curriculums today I think really is key to embedding it into future practice and, and into the jobs of tomorrow um, but our senior colleagues also have to be upskilled and to prevent the principles being undermined through the hidden curriculum um, and it also relies on employing organisations and whether that is f- of professionals as adults or schools for children need to ensure they've got the infrastructure to put in place to support people in putting that learning into practice so that means including principles of sustainability in the writing and review process of all of their policies um, and also making sure that you know the way that we're delivering the education in itself is sustainable so you know, for example, educational meetings for adult learners. How, where do they happen? Do they happen online? Do you have to drive there? What, how much paper are you using for your resources? So, you know, I, I think the teaching professionals of tomorrow, as well as professionals of today, about sustainable practices is really important. But it's not the entire part of the solution. You know, it's not enough in isolation. Changes to training curricula will take a long time to embed. Um, And the climate crisis is an emergency. You know, we need to take action against it now. So ultimately, we need to fall back on strong leadership on sustainability from our policymakers as a matter of urgency. Um, And I think that does include education. Um, But we can't wait for the kids of tomorrow to be adults. Um, You know, the the kids of today to be adults tomorrow uh, to actually bring about these changes. We, We need to take action on it now.
1: I totally agree with that, Lucy. Just to weigh in with an example of the power of arts and culture, because that's what Leeds 2023's kind of stake is in all of this, Um, and thinking about how, uh, yeah, culture and the arts can be used as an educational tool for some of those people that, um, Alice, you were referring to, who maybe don't, you know, massively take to school and succeed in those traditional educational environments. And a friend of mine is an editor for the, you know, iconic show that is Doctors on on the BBC. Um, and he was saying that they're making really, really subtle changes to the way in which they, you know, edit and film that show. Like one of the characters has an electric car and it's not mentioned. It's not a plot line. It's just there in the background trying to be, you know, normalized in the only way that they know how, which I think is a really, you know, incredible example of something really small that I think will have a big impact. Moving on, because I'm aware of the time Um Next question: In the digital age, how can we as a society use tech to become more sustainable? In your experience, have you witnessed any ways in which tech has been used for the public good, combating combating climate change?
3: Well, yes, <laughs> it's uh, very exciting, isn't it? I mean, it just really has the power to change you know, our way of life to to you know to use less resources to reduce greenhouse gases you know, to really help us to, to move beyond, you know, what is the possessions and the material that we have in our, so we rely on so much in our economy to something perhaps based on sharing access through rental, um, from where, you know, and, and this, this really could be the mark of a new, a new golden age, perhaps for us all. And it's something that, you know, could be truly inclusive, because we can enable other communities to be able to in, to be able to access things which they, they cannot access now. Um, so, I mean, IT is at the heart of that, and there's already good, good examples, but um, these are still, I think, in the beginning of their, of the, of their, of their development. You know, just last week we had m saying they're going to start renting dresses. That's exciting. They've been a, a jeans rental for a very long time now from um, the Netherlands, which is good. And, you know, we've got sort of car share schemes and things like that going on. But, you know, information technology, you know, could allow us to make growth about other things in the future, not just accumulating possessions, but it could be about that sharing economy, about creating jobs, creating a good life, giving us a a life that, you know, could be based in creativity, having the time for our health, for caring for others, spending our money on things which are good for us and not just about acquiring those possessions and that's just so exciting to me um and i mean there are lots of other places that i would see it being able to make a huge difference to us you know about data and how we access data and you know they've been using um oh gosh what is it um oh golly i've forgotten the word for it um blockchain that's it blockchain to yeah <laughs> to uh to make sure that we understand where sustainable goods are coming from and that they actually are sustainable. So that's been really, so around sustainable palm oil, for instance. So huge, I know, huge developments and opportunities. And, um, you know, I, for one, am very excited about these, about these changes, um, you know, and around our energy supply, being able to kind of access all sorts of different renewable energy supplies and be able to piece them together, provide the energy we need for the lives that we want um, and enabling us to be able to you know to perhaps all of us to contribute to that you know through perhaps our own um interventions that we know where we're investing in renewable energy we might even have it that the electric battery in our car is actually kind of used to um fuel energy needs at night while we're while it's sitting out you know outside our house Um, But then it's you know that it's topped up by morning, ready for us to to use to go somewhere. So you know there's there's some huge, um, you know, um, opportunities um, for IT um, coming up and uh, already underway. But uh, we need we we need to see this develop a great deal more. I'm very excited. I will I will hand over. I'm sorry.
1: I think that key, that issue
2: about how IT platforms and artificial intelligence can help with sharing and optimizing resources is is a really really powerful thing. So I think the degree to which it um, requires an individual's intervention and in decision making is is a is a kind of sliding scale. So the kind of energy system integration that could be achieved by having Cars, houses um, used as storage as well as micro generation. And the like, you know, that's that's it's a technical perfection. It's really easy to draw the flow diagrams about when it was mooted that, you know, a smart Internet of things might actually because overnight your freezer is probably staying cold and you don't need to open it. So maybe somebody Out there would turn off your freezer because you didn't need that electricity and then it would be back on by the time so you know there was an outcry about (laughs) big brother taking over because the right to control your own fridge is kind of the the line that cannot be crossed so I think we've got we've got a way to go before we've got full public acceptance of the potential of tech to optimize the use of resources. I think the other observation I'd say is that um, technology is particularly powerful when it enables people to connect either around shared interests or shared needs, Um, but we we can't help but also notice sometimes it gives people a reason not to connect. Anybody who's had to grapple with a voicemail, a so-called artificial intelligence voicemail system when trying to access a service provider will know that. It doesn't always feel like a tech interface is really about optimising anything other than the, the, the provider's needs. So, you know, there's some things to think about in how we deploy technology, I think. Um, the other thing I, I wonder whether, and I don't know whether this sits on public acceptability, but I think that the potential for technology using the kind of blockchain information, understanding procurement, impact along supply chain to help with live what supermarkets call choice editing, the idea that, you know, any supermarket could present you with twenty-two different types of baked beans, but actually they give you four because those four, they've edited your choice down to a number that they, they can both stock and they think will cover most of your variety of needs. You know, I wonder whether that some of that choice editing might be made available to us through our smartphones or through other you know, things that on supermarket shelves so that you've got a little bit more live information about the impacts of your purchasing decisions in a very day-to-day environment. So you don't have to strategically decide in advance of what it's going to be, but there's information that helps you understand, given the choices available, what your your best decision is for tea that night or whatever it might be. So I think there are some interesting things there, but we shouldn't lose sight of uh, user interface and user design and user acceptability in as we get very excited about what (laughs) data management and algorithms can deliver for us.
4: Yeah I, mean, I think you're right I think um, there's definitely going to be a, a role for increasing um, kind of run-of-the-mill civilian use of more and more technologies and obviously the user interface is going to have to be one that is accessible and easy to use regardless of your um, kind of tech literacy. Obviously my experiences in healthcare and clearly the pandemic has led to rapid development of telemedicine services and I think of that as more of a kind of two-way conversation and um, interface rather than simply being a tech as a provider of information Um, and that certainly has environmental benefits through reduction of travel footprint you know we know that patient travel contributes to about five percent of the NHS carbon footprint so telemedicine has definitely got um, climate benefits it's also more convenient for a huge number of patients you know less time traveling means less time off work um, less money spent on parking at our hospitals for example um but the rapid development does definitely risk leaving some people behind particularly people who don't have access to hardware or don't have access to the internet and as I mentioned those who lack computer literacy I would say there's definitely a risk of widening inequality obviously in my field I'm thinking about widening health inequality but I would say widening inequality in general if you're thinking about future tech developments um you know, and we know that those who are most affected by lack of access are also those who are more likely to be affected by other determinants of health, things like poverty, which will impact negatively on, on their health. So, you know, we need to think about not just the user interface, but how we make it accessible to, to people who don't have available, you know, for example, telemedicine clinics are all well and good. But if you don't have a computer in your house and you don't have a smartphone, how are you supposed to access it? And there are solutions to that, for example, creating a, a clinic room in your local GP practice. Where people might be able to have some support to log onto the internet, but that also relies on computer literacy and staff. With staff, particularly in the NHS, have had to learn remarkably quickly um, in the pandemic because so much of our service has switched to being online. Um, So we need to ensure we're upskilling the staff as well. So you know they're not necessarily tech experts, and we can't expect them to be able to support service users if they themselves don't know what they're doing. So I think that any new tech that that we're talking about in any tech solutions needs to be assessed for for accessibility and to make sure that we're not leaving anyone behind. And I also think we need to mention, because it's important and relevant to this conversation, um, that we should be mindful of the negative environmental impacts of tech. You know, we've talked about all some of the great stuff, but for example, natural resource use, metals required to build new tech. So I think that any tech solution needs to be thinking about its own sustainability and its own climate footprint, um, you know, in its own Right. So, for example, thinking about using recycled metals um, and also making sure they've got an ethical supply chain. So ensuring fair pay and safe working conditions to to all the people who are involved in building these new tech solutions.
1: Mm. Such a good point, Lucy. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, We have one more question, which I'm going to try and squeeze in, um, which I think kind of echoes what you were just saying. Are electric cars the way forward, or is it that moving the carbon footprint to the manufacturing of massive and toxic batteries, which will die within 10 years and heat on landfill?
4: Well, I'm, I'm definitely not an expert in that, but I do think that electric vehicles probably are part of the solution, but they're not the thing that we should be focusing all our energy on. You know, first line is for as many people as possible to stop using their cars altogether. So that's going to depend on improvements in public transport and active travel infrastructure and with neighbourhoods that are designed to ensure goods and services and work are all within short distances from home. You know, public transport needs to be designed to be accessible for disabled people and so that they're able to use it independently. And active travel infrastructure, particularly for cycling and walking, needs to be safe for everybody at all times of day and night. You know, as a doctor, I really appreciate that active travel has huge co-benefits, both for people and for planet. Reduction in air pollution is good for population health. And moving more is good for individual health, you know, through benefits of greater exercise. And obviously, that then in turn reduces the requirement for healthcare. And reducing the requirement for healthcare reduces the carbon footprint of the healthcare system. So, so it's a win-win on all counts there um but i do think there are some instances when vehicles are necessary and are going to continue to be necessary so for example ambulances you know some of these very large vehicles can be replaced by electric bikes you know for delivering medications locally or for first responders to unwell patients in city centers but you're always going to need an ambulance and it's always going to need to be able to travel several hundred miles in an emergency without having to charge up first um so so there's a huge way to go in terms of infrastructure for that um, but I think, you know, we are part of the way there. You might have seen the launch at COP26 of the first zero emissions ambulance and it can travel 300 miles in one journey. So, so it's a really exciting step in the right direction. And I don't think that we can ignore electric vehicles, even though I don't think they should be our first priority. Certainly not on an individual level.
2: Fabulously. Lucy just borrowed my other soapbox. Yeah, great, <laughs> I can put that to, to one side. Uh, the thing I build, the two things I build on there is that... Um, if e-bikes are going to be more helpful to people than e than e car, EVs, then um, we have to create the infrastructure that enables people to travel safely, securely, and to do the skills support and all the rest of it. And, and also work with employers. A lot of the you know, the, the journeys that people make is because they can't get the different bits of their lives to line up appropriately. So let's get all that sorted before. We make things impossible for the car because if we um, if we if we demonise the use of private vehicles first, then all we do is end up exacerbating the inequalities that, that Lucy's already described really powerfully. Um, on the, specifically on the batteries issue, it's absolutely right to pay attention to that, but I'm currently less concerned about that because rare earth metals etc are incredibly valuable and therefore there's quite a lot of business focus on recovery and recycling of those from previous waste as well, mining former landfills to kind of recover um, waste that was thrown away before we understood the the real scarcity um, and limited resources of rare earth metals, metals plus in particularly in Europe you know a focus on um, trying to um, eliminate modern slavery and supply chains means that a lot of the rather charmingly called artisanal mining, which makes it sound like it's all about producing your, your you know, your beautiful bread and coffee, whereas in fact it's, you know, unlicensed exploitation um, of uh, in very poor working conditions in, in places like Democratic Republic of, of Congo and the like, you know, those, those kind of practices that are finding supply routes certainly to europe drying up so i i my sense is that actually the while the risk of battery related waste and and toxicity is definitely there i think there are things in motion to to mitigate those those risks Uh, it's the market doesn't deliver on many aspects of sustainable development but actually where resources have value the market is one way of, of making change happen
3: yeah i would absolutely agree with that thank you alice i mean we've already got some good examples happening um around battery recycling um so you know got renault is already recycling all its electric car batteries I and mean, it is actually only around a few hundred a year but and that will grow but they are at the end of that that is happening and Volkswagen have got a factory um, opening to recycle up to 3,600 a year during just their pilot phase. And we've got some examples here in this country of um, innovation starting to kind of, you know, take hold and uh, look at this because you're right, you know, those materials are really valuable and um, wanted and needed. And so, you know, there's also sort of ways of perhaps reusing the batteries in that energy storage that we were talking about just earlier. You know that batteries often are good for eighty percent of their energy capacities, which once they're not suitable for use in EVs, but they they, they could be used for other energy storage um, uses. So I think that that one will sort itself. Um, but the the last thing I would say about electric vehicles is, you know, Lucy's absolutely right. You know, we 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 need to see other other types of um, transport available before electric vehicles have to be used. Um, and, you know, at the moment, you know, we are such a car centred um, society and while we're making the switch from our current transport options straight into electric vehicles, we risk going down the same route as some other countries who are ahead of us and adopting electric vehicles where there are real social issues because this has resulted in, you know, um, perhaps free parking and transport and uh, access into cities where you know, other uh, more exp- uh, fossil um, fi- fueled vehicles are um, not able to access those 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 that, you know that that uh, get th- those benefits, and so people are kind of really trans- traveling u- only using electric vehicles in the main, and this has resulted in you know public transport starting to suffer, and so people you know are being priced out of the market on electric vehicles unable to access public transport and it's leading to real you know issues where you've got a disparate society which is you know unable a whole section such is unable to access transport now that's that's not good enough um, So we do need to really watch ourselves in the UK that we don't allow that to happen but um, currently they are they are a good option for, uh, for personal transport where other options aren't available I think and those issues will resolve themselves in due course
1: wonderful thank you all so much i'm going to draw our conversation to a close there and i just wanted to yeah say thank you again this has been a truly inspiring and hopeful conversation and a really nice way to spend a wednesday morning so thank you all Um, are there any ways in which we can stay in touch with you all Um, do you have any social media tags you might like us to know or any upcoming projects you'd like to highlight to the cohort
2: I'm, I'm um, t- far too scared and far too old to engage effectively in social media, it would appear. <clears throat> would kill me if that was my uh, presence on some of the platforms. Um, so I'm actually best found through my webpage web at the University of Leeds um and uh an email to me old school as it may be at a.m.on at or a google search will bring me up is the best way to track
4: me down
1: brilliant thanks alice well, um,
4: I, I'm maybe I'm the other end of the, the spectrum. You can find me um, on LinkedIn, um, Lucy Brooks, or I am on Twitter for all my sins. And I'm at Lucy underscore Ellen underscore um, and mostly tweet about climate and feminism. So if that's not your bag, you might not be interested. <laughs> but if it is, then uh, come join me.
3: Uh, I'm LinkedIn. Um, I do have a Twitter handle at PuffinLiz um but uh, she <laughs> isn't isn't used a tremendous amount but you're very welcome to to get in touch um but yeah linkedin or or, or my email elizabeth.edgington at bitc.org.uk it's a bit of a long one so maybe linkedin will be easier but always love hearing from people and um you know the only way we're going to make progress is by talking collaborating working you know wherever we can supporting each other
1: Wonderful. Thank you all so much for your generosity and your time this morning. Really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Thanks.